There are two scripture readings this morning, both from the book of Psalms. The first reading is from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voices go into all the earth. Their words at the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The second reading is from Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sun of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. This morning we're in week three now of this series we're calling Obstacles to Belief. The idea of which is to address these objections that people have when it comes to Christianity. These things that trip them up. These things that keep them from believing. So in week one we talked about exclusivity and arrogance. This idea, well how can Christianity claim to be the one true religion? Last week we talked about moral inferiority. If, if Christianity is true then why has the church done all these terrible things throughout history? This week we're coming to one that I'm calling scientific progress. And the idea of this objection, uh, it basically goes like this. It says, look, I understand why we needed the idea of God in the past, because there were all these things that we couldn't explain, that we couldn't understand, and so we just slapped the label God on them. You know, So if lightning came down from heaven, well, we didn't know what that was about, so we said, well, there must be a, a God up there throwing lightning bolts down from heaven. Maybe he's, he's angry with us. But now, we, we do know where lightning comes from. Now we understand it. We know it's just an electrostatic discharge. So we don't need God anymore. Or on a, a lot more fundamental level, before we didn't know where we came from. We didn't know where the universe as a whole came from. Now we do. Now biology has given us the theory of evolution. Now physics has given us the theory of the Big Bang. We know where we came from. We, we know where the, the universe came from. We don't need those old theories about God anymore. So that's the the objection. I want to respond to it by making three points, three sections to this morning's sermon. So first, the first point, first section is going to be saying that this war that has developed between faith and science just makes no sense. It's completely absurd. It's, it's a false dichotomy. There's no reason for having to choose one or the other. There's really no conflict between faith and science. In fact, it's actually the, res- the reverse. There is a deep compatibility between scientific inquiry and faith. And that's going to be section one, deep compatibility. But then that raises the question, well, if that's true, if there is no conflict, then why have I heard of a conflict? You know, why are there these two sides that, that fight? Why have I seen bumper stickers of a, of a Darwin fish eating a Jesus fish? You know, what, what, <laughs> where does that come from? So that's what we're going to explain in sections two 
and three is how the war started. And like most wars, both sides are at fault. So uh, in section two, we're going to look at the sins of the church, the mistakes Christianity has made in overstepping its bounds and overreaching and claiming to think to know things that it really didn't know and provoking science and creating a war where there didn't need to be one. Well, then in section three, we're going to look at the sins of science, the ways that science, too, has played into this, has overstepped its bounds and created this war where there didn't need to be one. So those will be the three sections to this morning's sermon. First, the deep compatibility between science and faith. Second, the sins of the church. And third, the sins of science. So first, the deep compatibility between science and faith. And the easiest place to start with this one is just historically to know that if you go back and look at the scientific revolution in the 15th century through the 18th century, all of the heavyweights are Christians. Newton, Galileo, Kepler, Descartes, Pascal, Francis Bacon. All of these guys were extremely devout. You say, well, you know, big deal. Everybody was a Christian back then. It was a cultural thing. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying they were cultural Christians. They just happened to go to church. I'm saying they were men of faith first and foremost. Newton actually wrote a lot more about the Bible and about Christian theology than he did about uh, physics or calculus. Same thing with Pascal. He wrote a lot more about his inner spiritual life than he did about math. And you say, okay, so fine, they, they uh, had this hobby, they had this God hobby, they were really into God and science, you know, they loved God and they loved science both. But that's not what I'm saying either. What I'm saying is, and not that they just happened to love God and science, I'm saying they loved science precisely because they loved God. Their love for science grew out of their love for God because they wanted to understand creation as a way of understanding the creator. The way they saw it was that God has given us two books about himself. He's given us the book of scripture, and he's given us the book of nature. And if you want to understand God, you should read both books. So they've got the Bible in one hand and a microscope in the other, and in both cases they're doing theology, just theology of two different kinds. Now, they didn't come up with this idea. They didn't come up with the idea of the two books and that nature is a book about God that speaks about God. That was the gist of the first scripture passage that you heard read this morning. David says this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. David says, Nature reveals knowledge about God. Fellini, the the great Italian film director, has this line where he says, all art is autobiography. In other words, it doesn't matter if the piece of art or the film or the painting or whatever is uh, so-called autobiographical. All art is autobiography because it expresses something about the creator. And David says that's true of creation, about God. It is part of his autobiography. You want to understand him, you got to read it. you got to read nature and look into it. And the more you read it, the more you study it, the deeper you dive into it, the more impressed with him you become. Which is the exact opposite of the objection this morning. Because the objection says, well, the more you learn, the less you need God, because now you have an explanation. And the Christian view is, no, the more you learn, the more impressed you are with God, because you see his handiwork 
that much more closely. You know, think of like, uh, so the, the second scripture reading this morning from Psalm 139, David switches from talking about the heavens declaring the glory of God to he talks about human reproduction. You know, a, a child being formed in the mother's womb and how that declares the glory of God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. How vast are the sum of your thoughts. So David didn't know anything about human reproduction compared to what we know today. And the question is, what has that increased knowledge done in terms of the awe and mystery of it? You know, if you think of like uh, those coffee table books that have pictures of a child inside the, the womb, you know, this is what the child looks like at, at one week. This is what the child looks like at two weeks. I've never met anyone who looks at one of those books, flips through one of those books and says, well, you know, I mean, it just, just kind of disappointing. You know, it just kind of takes all the takes all the mystery out of it. You know, before, I thought it was a miracle, and now it's just, it's just so plain. It's just so obvious. No, I, I dare you. I dare you to look through one of those books and have that reaction. Instead, all it does is deepen your sense of awe and wonder because you see how he did the knitting. You see the details of it, you're more impressed with his work than ever before. And you say, even with more fervor than David did, how vast are the sum of your thoughts? Because you understand the sum even higher than he did. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So the increased knowledge doesn't depreciate your understanding of God. It actually magnifies him. What, What Francis Bacon said is he said, knowledge is the storehouse for the glory of the creator. Knowledge is the storehouse for the glory of the creator. The more you know, the more you marvel. Every scientific discovery gets turned into a hymn because as you understand him better, you praise him all the more. That's the first section, the deep compatibility between science and faith. All of the guys, of all the giants of the scientific revolution would have thought that this dichotomy was absolutely laughable. And for that matter, so would most scientists today. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what's it? Stephen Jay Gould, the, the biologist at uh, Harvard, not a, not a believer, uh, has a whole book on the compatibility of science and faith. And what he says in that book is, he has this line where he says, look, either half of my colleagues are enormously stupid or Modern science and faith are completely compatible. That's the first section, the deep compatibility between science and faith. But then, as we said at the outset, it raises this question of, well, how'd the war start? And that takes us to section number two. Secondly, this morning, section number two, the sins of the church, putting Christianity back in its place. And Christianity is partly to blame for this war that's developed. So there's a couple of examples that come to mind times that Christianity has fought scientific progress. The first example that comes to mind is with Galileo in the 17th century in Italy. Now, this one has been a little bit overblown. Uh, So it is bad. You know, they did condemn Galileo as a heretic. uh, But he was really good friends with the Pope. He was put in this very posh house arrest. You know, he kept writing. It's not like they burned him at the stake or anything. But, But nevertheless, they did condemn him as a heretic. And they condemned him as a heretic for defending Copernicus's theory that the earth revolves around the sun rather than vice versa, which he, he happened to be right about, by the way. I don't know if you heard that. Um, and the church decides, no, we're going to put a stake in the ground. We are going to, to say that this is a do-or-die issue. Why? Because there were a couple of, of verses in the Bible 
that made it sound like the earth stays still, and they made it sound like the sun moves. So you actually heard one of them in that same Psalm 19 passage, the passage about the, the heavens declare the glory of God. It says uh, later on in that passage, the sun emerges from its chambers like a bridegroom, and it travels across the sky. So there you have it, the sun moves. Or there's another verse in Psalms that says, the Lord has established the earth on its foundations, it shall not be moved. And so the church says, well, there you have it. You know, this is an issue of, are you going to believe the Bible or not? Are you going to believe God's word or not? And the problem is, that's just not what it's an issue of. What it's an issue of is not the trustworthiness of the Bible, but how you read the Bible. People ask me all the time, do you believe the Bible is literally true? Well, of course I believe the Bible is literally true. But just because it's literally true doesn't mean every line of it is intended to be taken literally. Because the Bible is not one book. It's a library. You know, it's, it's deceptive because they print it on these really thin tissue paper pages and they shrink the type way down. But if you print it on normal pages and normal size type, it actually fills a whole shelf. And it's, a, it's got all different types of genres in it. It's got history. It's got law. It's got poems. And you have to know which type you're reading. So if you go to the Bible and you pick out the law part, which is just code, it's just legal code, and you try to read that for inspiration, well, the Bible's supposed to be inspiring. Well, it's not going to work. It's going to be about the same as reading the U.S. code or any other you know, legal document. On the other hand, if you go and take the poems and read the poems like they're a scientific treatise, you're going to get the wrong answer. It's not going to work because they weren't intended to be read like that. Poems are by definition metaphorical. They are by definition non-literal. That's the genre. And even in this case with the sun, even if you just take the line in question, if you're going to go down the path of reading that line literally, well, look, it says the sun moves. Well, if you're going to read the line literally, then you have, it says the sun is a bridegroom that emerges from its chambers. So who is the sun married to? And, you know, where, where is, it says God makes a tent for the sun. What is this tent made out of? You know, what type of material can withstand the heat of the sun? You just, you just make yourself look silly really quickly. It's not an issue of whether the Bible is trustworthy or not. It's an issue of knowing how to read. And the church just didn't know how to read. Galileo himself believed the Bible was perfect. You know, I mentioned him in that list of devout Christians early on. Galileo himself believed every word of the Bible was true. Psalm 19 is true, but it's a poem. And saying a poem is true is different from saying a scientific treatise is true or saying a piece of history is true. What people say is, well, it's a slippery slope. You know, once you say that you're interpreting that part metaphorically, well, then can't the resurrection of Jesus be metaphorical too? No, because that's not a poem. That's history. So read history like it's history and read poems like they're poems. That's the first uh, example that comes to mind, Galileo. The second one that comes to mind is a lot more embarrassing to us, probably because just it's a lot closer to home. And this is the, uh, the state laws against the teaching of evolution in public schools that started to crop up in the American South, early 20th century, and a lot of them were still on the books until quite recently. You know, the origin of the species is... Uh, published 1859, takes a while for it to catch on, and as soon as it does start to catch on, you have these states, majority Christian states, passing laws against it being taught in schools. So what is this about? It's the same thing as as with the Son and Psalms. It's about interpreting a given passage of Scripture 
literally, that may or may not be intended to be taken literally. So in this case, the, the passage is Genesis chapter 1, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, and where it says that in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And it tells you what he did on each of the six days. So first day was light. Second day was skies. Third day was uh, heavens. No, no, see, land. Third day was land. I got this from Sunday school. Uh, I'm glad we didn't print this so you can check it. I'm just going to make it up from here. Fourth day was... Uh, sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. Fifth day was the uh, fish and sea, uh, uh, birds. Birds are what they're called. And then the last day was land animals and human beings. And so what the argument goes is, well, th- there you have it. Six days. There's no time for... It doesn't say anything about one creature morphing into another creature. You know, so, I mean, that, that's it. You know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Fine. But what if I told you that a lot of scholars think that Genesis 1 is a poem, just like the book of Psalms. It sounds a lot like a poem, even in English. There's all this repetition. God saw it and said it was good. God saw it and said it was good. And in, in Hebrew, it sounds even more like a poem. What if I told you that Genesis chapter 2 is a second account of creation, which has dramatically more technical and specific language than Genesis chapter 1? What if I told you that the word for day in Genesis chapter 1, can also be translated epic or eon or era. See, it's complicated. And I'm not trying to actually come down on one side of this debate or the other. I'm not saying, well, obviously God didn't create the world in six little 24-hour days, and anybody who thinks that is an idiot. Because maybe he did. You know, Don't say, well, it would be impossible for him to do that. God can do anything he wants. If he wanted to create the world in six days, he could have. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's a difference between this question of whether you believe the Bible or not and this question of figuring out what it actually says. And you can have your opinion on what it says, but you can't be sure. You can't be sure that your opinion is the right opinion. You certainly can't be sure enough to pass a law criminalizing the teaching of a different opinion. It just doesn't make any sense. It's way overreaching, way overstepping bounds. And the irony is, if let's just say for a second that the, the theory of evolution is true. Let's assume it's true. If it is true, the theory of evolution needs God. You know, there's, there are, Let's say it happened exactly the way the biologists say it happened. What that means is that there were all these junctures at which something that had a one in a trillion chance of happening happened. And the next day, something else that had a one in a trillion chance of happening happened, and it went on like that for a while. Now, either that's incredibly good luck, or else there was somebody guiding the ship. And it's going back to what we were talking about in section one. There's actually a deep compatibility. You know, the theory of evolution, if it's true, all it does is just give us more of a picture, let us peek, just like the photos, just like the ultrasounds of the baby developing, at the way God created, and it makes our awe and appreciation for him increase. Now, the other irony is, what if you flip it around? What if you assume, just for the sake of argument, that the theory of evolution isn't true? Because it actually has a lot of holes in it. It has a lot of problems with it. The second irony is that the scientific community has not been able to admit that. They haven't been able to talk about any of the holes and problems with the theory of evolution because as soon as the church started attacking it, it then becomes a litmus test issue for the scientific community. And which side are you on? Are you a Bible thumper? 
or are you a scientist? And so science can't critique itself. Science can't do what science does best because it's become dogma. It's become gospel. It's become this, this issue of are you in or are you out? In other words, if, if you don't like a given scientific theory, the best way to assure its dominance is to pass a law against it. Because then everybody's going to get all defensive and dug in about it. Science is good at correcting itself over time as long as the church doesn't barge into the biology department waving a Bible. And if you do that, all it's going to do is ossify the debate and shut down progress. So that's the second section of the sermon, the sins of the church. The way that the church has contributed by these mistakes it's made to this absolutely needless war between science and faith. And what we're saying is it comes from this misreading of biblical texts and from this acting sure when you're not really sure at all. But now with the time we have left, let's talk about the third thing, which is the sins of science. It's not a one-way street. It's not just the church that's messed up. The scientific community has overreached and overstepped and acted sure of things that it's not sure of either. And the, the first example that comes to mind here is what you could label philosophical naturalism. Philosophical naturalism, naturalism, naturism, is that nature is all there is. This world is all there is. The physical universe is all there is. There's nothing beyond this. And so everything you see and everything you experience, critically, everything you experience is just the, the result of the collision of atoms, these random forces that are guided by no one. Now, science has to assume that's true for the sake of doing experiments. You have to assume this world is all there is. You can't, you can't be doing an experiment and say, why'd that happen? Well, you know, maybe it was an angel. You know, it, it messes everything up. But it, it's one thing to assume it for the sake of the lab. It's another thing to then leave the lab and say, by the way, that assumption, we've proven that. There is nothing besides the physical universe. This world is all there is. It's not a scientific theory. It, it's a philosophy. It's, a, it's an assumption. It's a theology, really. And as a philosophy, it fails in explaining the phenomena that we actually see and experience. You know, even atheistic philosophers have looked at the philosophy of naturalism. So you take a guy like Richard Dawkins, one of the most brilliant biologists of the last 50 years, and his science is unimpeachable. But then he starts writing philosophy and saying, well, really, this is all there is. And other philosophers say, no, what are you doing? You're scientists. Don't do philosophy. This doesn't even make any sense. Because what you have to do is you have to explain all these things that science wasn't meant to explain. So, for instance, science is good at explaining some things. It's not so good at explaining others. It's good at explaining uh, sex. It's good at explaining the sex drive. You know, if you ask a scientist, an evolutionary biologist, why, you know, when a male sees an attractive female? Why, when they see this picture of this attractive female, why is there this, this physiological response? Why is there this attraction? Why is there this, this magnetism between them? The scientist is, has a very easy time explaining that. It's for the propagation of the species, and that explanation makes perfect sense. But then what it has a hard time explaining is not sex, but love. If you've ever heard an evolutionary biologist try to explain love what you will have is this unique experience of seeing a very brilliant person sound incredibly stupid. Because they just, they don't, they can't get their mind around it in their terms, in their worldview. Same thing with like, so science is very good at explaining why a, a good meal should be so satisfying. You know, why when you eat a good meal does it feel so good? Well, because it's keeping your body going, the propagation of the species. 
what science has a very hard time explaining is why art is so satisfying. Why music is so satisfying. Why beauty is so satisfying. It can't explain morality. It can't explain these emotions. It can't even explain the, the response we have to not just you know, a painting or a movie. It can't explain the response we have to nature itself. You know, go back to the, to the two examples we were talking about in the first section. The stars on the one hand, the heavens, and reproduction, human life on the other hand. What, what science can't explain is, what, what naturalism, I should say, what the philosophy of naturalism can't explain is why when we get the, the pictures back from the Hubble telescope, why they look like that. And by like that, I mean breathtakingly beautiful. Millions of colors, these formations and these patterns, unlike anything you've ever seen before. If, if you haven't looked at these in a while, just go home today, turn off the lights, open up your computer, and just watch slideshows for 30 minutes. And they're, just, they're almost embarrassed by it, that it should be that beautiful, because there's no reason for it, according to their worldview. The Bible has a perfectly good reason for it. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so we have these pictures of these formations out in space that nobody has ever seen until a couple of decades ago. They've been there the whole time. Christianity can explain that very well. The heavens declare the glory of God, and science is kind of just dumbfounded why they should look like that. When it comes to a birth, human reproduction, science can't explain why you feel so emotionally stirred when you flip through that book. Naturalism can't explain why when you're in the delivery room it makes you feel that way. When you see a human life come into the world, it makes you feel that way. You know, why when I see my daughters being born do I feel like laughing and singing and crying? Why do I feel that way? If, if naturalism is right, then it's just all an illusion. That I'm just a silly, stupid animal watching these other silly, stupid animals. coming. It happens every day, a thousand times a day. It's just reproduction. Every organism does it. It's no big deal. And these girls, these organisms, will eat and sleep and live and die like every other organism, and their existence will have meant nothing. So anything I feel toward them or about them, about their life being miraculous, is just an illusion. Unless... What David says in Psalm 139 is true. Unless God did knit them together in their mother's womb. Unless he did know every one of their days before it came to be. Unless they are made in his image. In which case, my response makes perfect sense. My response is in line with reality. You say, well, okay, so maybe the Christian theory is, is you know, more inspiring you know, maybe it feels better. But isn't that just wish fulfillment? Aren't you just picking the Christian explanation of reality because it validates your experiences? And my response to that would be, maybe that's true. Maybe I am picking it for that reason. But you know why people on the other side are picking their theory? Not because it validates their experiences, but because it justifies their behavior. Because if the whole universe means nothing and it's all just pointless, you know what that means? It means you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. N.T. Wright is the the greatest uh, New Testament scholar of this generation, and he was asked in an interview once, uh, you know, a lot of your colleagues think the New Testament is made up. You somehow think that it's real. 
how do you explain that difference? And he had the, the chutzpah to say, I know all those guys. I went to grad school with them. And funny enough, the, the moment they decided the New Testament wasn't true was about one day after they started sleeping around. You pick the theory that works for you. And if you want to do whatever you want, you're going to pick a theory that says the universe is pointless. On the other hand, if you are willing to come under the authority of a loving God, then what that opens up for you is the possibility that it's not pointless. And these experiences you have, these experiences of truth and beauty and love are not illusions, but are the most real thing we have. It's the first way that science overreaches is with this philosophy of naturalism, assuming that this world is all there is, when they have no proof for that, and it explains our experience of life very poorly. The second way, and we'll close with this, the second way that that science overreaches, the second sin of science is what I would call intellectual hubris. And here what we're talking about is this attitude. Nobody, nobody comes out and says this, but you get this vibe. You get this attitude sometimes that, well, we really know a lot. You know, we're, we're quite impressed with ourselves. We've, we've learned all these things, and we're getting quite close to understanding the world as it really is. And the truth is, we're not. We're, we're not getting close at all. Because the more we learn, the more we figure out how much we have to learn. The farther we see, the farther we see what we haven't seen yet. So in that sense, scientific progress is actually like scientific regress. Because the faster that knowledge doubles is just the faster that our ignorance grows. We know a lot more today than we knew yesterday or 100 years ago. So relative to what we used to know, our, our, our knowledge continues to go up and up. Relative to what there is to be known, our knowledge continues to go down and down. It is literally true that we know less and less every year as we figure out how much we don't know. Which is why every scientific theory that reigned 500 years ago is today outdated. The only thing we know for sure is that the stuff we think we know for sure, we don't know for sure. Uh, you know, we started talking about Newton. The most certain thing we had in terms of scientific knowledge was Newton's laws. That was as good as it gets. That is gold. And it takes 300 years after Newton for Einstein to come along and say, well, you know, Newton wasn't necessarily wrong, but it's not quite like he said it is. And the degree to which Einstein improves on Newton is staggering. It turns out space and time aren't two different things. But one thing, space-time. It turns out gravity isn't one object pulling on another, but it is the curvature of space-time, which is a fabric. It turns out that as you get close to the speed of light, time slows down. It turns out that the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, is not just some random number. It is deeply embedded in every particle in the universe, such that if you destroy that particle, the energy released will be equal to the mass of the particle times the speed of light squared. E equals mc squared. And the question is, who saw this coming? Nobody. Nobody saw this coming. Second question is, who thinks this is the end of the story? And the answer is, 
unless you're a fool, nobody. Nobody thinks this is the end of the story. There has to be more. Einstein drilled down one layer deeper than Newton, and somebody's going to drill down another layer deeper than Einstein. And it may take 300 years, and we're never going to get to the bottom of it. Why? Because God is bigger than us. He is infinitely bigger than us. And you can keep going down layer after layer after layer after layer, and all it will do is show you that many layers there are to uncover. Richard Feynman is uh, one of the greatest American physicists that's ever lived, and there was a photo taken of his classroom on the day that he died. And written on the blackboard of his classroom is the sentence, what I cannot create, I cannot understand. We'll never understand it because we didn't create it. We weren't there. That's exactly what, what God says to Job. You remember this passage. It's actually the basis of the song we sing, uh, Only You. We sang it last, last Sunday. Uh, and you're probably familiar with the book of Job, the story of this guy who undergoes all this senseless suffering. And the, the majority of the book is just Job asking these questions of God, interrogating God, putting God on trial, essentially. And the whole book, God is silent. And you read through the whole book to get to the end, to the last chapter, where Job shows up, or where God shows up, I'm sorry, where God shows up and God decides that he's going to question Job. He doesn't answer Job's questions. He just now is the one asking the questions. It's uh, one of the only places in the Bible where God is sarcastic. And I want to read it to you. It's sort of long, but I think it's worth it. And it's pretty relevant to what we've been talking about this morning. So we'll put this up on the screen so you can follow along. God shows up and he says this to Job. Who's this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? What's the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? And what's astounding is that Job's the oldest book in the Bible, by the way. So one of the oldest written documents we have of any kind, older than the book of Genesis. What's astounding is that here we are thousands of years later, and after all these experiments, after all this progress, we still can't answer those questions in the affirmative. When God asks, do you know the laws of the heavens, 
we say, well, we thought we did, but now we don't, now we're not sure, but we're going to, we're going to figure it out really soon. You know, nothing's changed. Thousands of years later, and nothing's changed. Which raises this question of, well, how is that? How does this book remain true? After every scientific theory that was around at the time of Job has been thrown in the waste bin, here stands Job. Here stands the Bible. How did that happen? You know, I mean, if, if you're asking about uh, the trustworthiness of science versus the Bible, you know, science wants to say, well, we have experiments. We have proof, you know, so we're more trustworthy. But what about when it comes to longevity? Why has this stood the test of time? Why is this still true today? And it raises this question of, well, who wrote it? You know, who, who is this guy that wrote something this many thousands of years ago that's still just as true today as it was then? I want to close this morning with a quote from George Steiner, who is uh, one of the greatest literary critics of the 20th century. Not a Christian, not a believer in any sense, but I want you to hear what he says. He says this, Time and time again, I have sought to imagine, albeit indistinctly, Shakespeare remarking to some friend about whether work on Hamlet or Othello had gone well or poorly. I can, with great effort, picture him setting aside his work and expressing satisfaction over it. What I am unable to do is to arrive at any thought image, however naive, at any impression of a literary technique or rhetorical transport, however masterful, when confronting the author of God's speeches out of the whirlwind in Job. The idea of some man breaking for lunch after he had, quote, invented and set down these and certain other biblical texts leaves me, as it were, blinded and off balance. I find myself groping towards some notion of an order of inspiration and dominion over words for which we have no satisfactory analogy elsewhere or any altogether naturalistic explanation. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? I'm unable to account wholly rationally for the ways of the one who asked me this question. Perhaps this is as it should be. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of your work. We are in awe of the way that the heavens declare your glory. We are in awe of ourselves, even, the way that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We try to count your thoughts, and we just give up. How vast is the sum of them? I pray that you would help us to repent for dogmatism, for being overly certain, for acting like we know things we don't know. I pray that you'd lead us to repent for pretending that one interpretation of your word is perfect and everyone else is wrong. But God, more importantly, we we ask this morning that you'd help us to repent of pride, that you'd help us to repent of this desire we have to be free of you, to do whatever we want, and not be told what to do by anybody else. That's lead, led us to the, this absurd idea that, that we can figure out the world without you. Speak to our hearts this morning. Show us that the, the handprints of you are all over us and all over this world. And help us to, as we continue to search, as we continue to try to understand, 
creation, as we continue in the spirit of scientific progress, as we walk that road, lead us ever deeper into this place of praise and awe and wonder. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.